Well, we're going to do a little bit of review here. On Wednesday evening, we began talking about something our Old Testament hero, David, did so often. Inquire of the Lord. We went all the way back to creation and reminded ourselves of the precise and intricate plan that was in the heart and mind of God that he spoke into existence and that every bit of it was intentional and purposeful. We reminded ourselves of the need to turn away from the chaos and noise of discouragement and disappointment and turn our faces toward God, knowing that only in him would we find the answer to every question. We talked about the difference between our perception of ourselves and God's perception of us. Where we see flaws and inadequacies, God sees Christ living in us and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He sees us clothed in Jesus Christ. He sees us as complete, entire, and wanting or lacking nothing. And we talked about the necessity of putting ourselves in a position to know God more intimately, to meditate on who he is, and to approach him expectantly, knowing that he wants to talk to us more than we want to hear from him. We're going to look into one of the most practical books in the Bible today when it comes to living out our Christian life. Turn with me to the book of James. James is near the back of the Bible. It's just five short chapters kind of wedged in between Hebrews and 1 Peter. It's believed that this book, now there were several Jameses, right? So it's believed that this book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mother, but a different father, obviously. And scholars believe that James and his siblings did not come to faith in Christ as the Messiah until after the resurrection. James makes it clear that Christian faith without works or corresponding actions isn't genuine faith. James would say that if our faith in Jesus doesn't propel us to do the kind of good works that Jesus did, that the faith we say we have is dead. It's worthless. It would be like me saying that I found this astounding new diet that promises that I'll lose 50 pounds in three days. But the result of following this diet is that I gain weight. Uh, the proof is in the results, right? And if I have no, and I have no doubt that others who desperately wanted to lose weight would not want to follow my amazing new diet. James wrote his letter to Jewish believers These people, uh, these weren't people who needed to get saved. They already professed their faith in Jesus. So we can take the instruction in this little book as instruction from the heart of God to us today. James 1, 2, and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7 says almost the same thing. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word that shows up in both of these scripture passages, trials here, it means test. But it's not a gotcha test. God's not trying to trip us up or catch us out in our failures. Dave and I recently listened to the first message uh, that Brother Keith Moore preached at this year's Week of Increase. And he was talking about these verses, and he used an analogy to shed light on what they mean that really spoke to me. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase what he said. When a vehicle of some kind, whether it's a car or an airplane or a bus or train, whatever, when a vehicle is developed, the designers and the engineers put it through tests to see how it will perform under a variety of circumstances. They may drive it in extreme temperatures, searing heat, to mind-numbing cold, high winds, rain, snow, ice, etc., in order to make sure the vehicle won't fail when a driver needs it to operate safely. They are proving the capabilities of the vehicle because, after all, consumers will want to know before handing over tens of thousands of dollars whether what they are buying is worth it. Once it has been thoroughly tested, it can be certified as safe and reliable. In a similar way, when we encounter circumstances that test our faith, God sees how we respond, and we know what he's watching for is our faith in action, because faith is everything to God. James 1 goes on in verses 4 and 5, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Verse 13 reminds us, let no one say, tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is not causing bad things to happen to us to see what we're made of. Can you say amen to that? We live in a fallen world, and bad things are all around us. We cannot live here without being touched by the work of the enemy at some point or in some way, whether it's being cut off in traffic or facing a life-threatening circumstance. When I received a frightening diagnosis, it wasn't God who put sickness on me. That came from the enemy, whose mission it is to steal kill, and destroy. But how I responded in the face of that diagnosis demonstrated whether my faith was genuine. Would I give in to the overwhelming temptation to fear, or would I reach deep into my reserves of faith and, re- and demand more from it than I ever had before? This was a test for me. Now, please, Let me add this and hear my heart. If a Christian brother or sister faces a similar situation but does not survive and goes on to heaven, it does not mean that person didn't pass the test. It doesn't mean 
he or she did not have enough faith. There will be stuff we or our loved ones go through that we won't understand this side of eternity. But no matter what, God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. And he is still our faithful and loving God. Those can be the greatest tests when things don't go as we hope or believe they should. Do we wipe away our tears, turn our face toward heaven and say, I still trust you, Lord, and I am going on with you? Or do we quit God, which is the worst thing we could do? It may seem as though we've strayed off topic, but we haven't. Remember, when we inquire of the Lord, we have to know to the core of who we are that he is And he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And in that same verse in Hebrews 11.6, we are told that without faith, it is impossible to please him. So in case you're wondering at this point, yes, it always comes down to faith until our faith is made sight. Amen. On Wednesday, we also talked about the times in which we are living. We need to know God and hear from him in order to live the life he asks us to live. Matthew 5 reminds us of who we are. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We know it isn't always easy to let our light shine. In this life, stuff happens. And most of the time, that stuff is connected to people. And even the nicest of people, other believers, can start tap tap dancing on your last raw nerve. And it isn't easy to walk in love every minute of the day, even with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. Uh, There you go. People will annoy us. It seems they when they do say... Excuse me. People will annoy us because it seems they do or say stupid things. Have you ever noticed that it's the ones you love the most who can make you the angriest? Don't look at your spouse right now. And often when we become angry or aggravated, disagreements, quarrels, and fights can spring up. If you brought your Bible today, I'd like you to open to James chapter 4. And we are going to be reading a number of verses here, so I would ask you to hang with me. Don't worry, it's not the whole chapter. And I'm reading out of the New Living. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, there's some in the pew, but the reason I'm asking you to, to open your Bible and to look at it as we read together, in my years of teaching, we were often reminded of that there are multiple ways that students learn. Some learn by listening. 
Some learn by doing. Some learn by seeing. But when we can combine multiple learning strategies, we have a better chance of retaining what we've learned. Amen? So you're going to hear the word, and you're going to see the word. Okay? So let's put our eyes on it. Excuse me. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that were within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Hopefully that's none of us. Uh, you are jealous of others who, uh, what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war and take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he placed within us should be faithful to him him and he gives grace generously as the scriptures say god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble so humble yourselves before god resist the devil and he will flee from you come close to god and god will come close to you wash your hands you sinners purify your hearts For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. While this passage seems pretty negative, I mean, James is calling us adulterers and sinners. He is pointing out that if we call ourselves Christians, our identity cannot be a reflection of the world. Our identity must be rooted and grounded in God and our lives a reflection of him. He promises us that through humility and submission to God, we will put the devil on the run. That's good news, church, because all the bad stuff comes from the enemy but we can put him on the run. Amen? That when we come close to God, and we can't do that without humility, he will come close to us. If we genuinely repent of our sins and failings, we will experience sorrow and deep grief because it's our our sin that has separated us from God. And as we humble ourselves in his presence, He will lift us up in honor. Can you imagine that? God Almighty desires to honor us when we acknowledge that apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him and through him, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Romans 12.2 instructs us, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
We will only renew our minds by spending time in the word and in his presence. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In essence, what the scripture is saying is, we become what we behold. If we're always looking at the world for how to be, we'll become like the world. If we're looking into the glory of God, we'll become more like God. Amen? Uh, And let's read that same verse in the Amplified. Do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to to its external and superficial customs, but be transformed, changed, by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitude. I'm getting some ringing up here, and I'm not sure. So that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. This is customized, man. It's not just a one-size-fits-all with God. He customizes what is right for us. And if we'll seek him and seek his wisdom and be in his presence, he's going to show us what is right for us. Drawing near to God, meditating on who he is and who we are in him, spending time in his presence, reading his word and listening for his voice will change us. Equip us, protect us, and make us more like him. Then when we step out into the world, filled to overflowing with the Spirit of God, we can bring his love and his peace to lost and frightened people. As each day ticks by, leading us to the end of time as we know it, we will be able to face adversity knowing we have the answers to every question. You may ask, How am I supposed to inquire of the Lord when I've never heard his voice? He never talks to me. Well, first I would recommend that you stop saying that. Um, John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We need to put ourselves in agreement with God's word and say what it says. If the word says that his sheep hear his voice, then since I'm one of his sheep, I hear his voice. Amen? Next. It would be good, or excuse me, it would do us all good to remember that Jesus is our bridegroom. Now, I know that might seem weird for men to hear and to say, but that's who he is. Just like I can say I am a son of God because he made us all his sons. First John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called sons of God. In the same way, Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom, and we all Christians collectively are his bride. Now, I have a question for you married folks. How many of you met your spouse before you were married? Anybody want to respond by a show of hands? 
How many of you met your spouse before you were married? Only one couple. Oh, two. Oh, okay, three. All right. So did you spend any time together? Okay. Did you have conversations with each other? You have to answer yes to this one. And by the grace of God, you may end up spending 20, 30, or 50 or more years together on this earth. Jesus is our bridegroom, and we will be his bride throughout eternity. How much more vital is it for us to spend time with him apart from interruptions? To tell him we love him and to read his love letters to us. Look, we have them. This is God's love letter to us. If we never spend quiet, intimate time alone with Jesus, how can he whisper his love to us? I want to remind us of something we looked at on Wednesday evening. God's creation of our world and us in it was determined before it began. It was in his mind. He knew it all. And when he spoke, it came into being. He knew the world before he spoke those first creative words. He knew who would occupy the earth and what we would need to sustain life. He custom designed the planet we would call home to not only sustain life, to meet our every need, but also to please our senses. He knew that one day the enemy would undermine God's authority to man <clears throat> Excuse me. And though his desire was for man, or his desire for man was that Adam would silence the serpent and not allow him to malign God, he also knew man would fall and sin. He knew this even before he breathed life into Adam's nostrils. And still, he created man in his image and likeness to be like God. And he made a way for us to be rescued from death before man even knew what death meant. He made us like himself so that we could know him, so that we could love him and have fellowship with him. God's love is so vast that it needed an outlet. His love so great that he gave. He gave us our place. He gave us our life. He gave us forgiveness, and he gave us redemption. He did everything for us to be united with him forever, and all he asked us to do was choose him. In light of all that, we must learn to put him in his rightful place in our hearts and demonstrate that through our actions. Get alone with God. Read his word. Listen for his voice. See God's attributes and character displayed on every page of scripture. Be changed in his presence as you meditate on who he is and all he has put in us. Become more aware of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Grow accustomed to his voice. Get used to being God conscious all day long. Then step out into the world as a reflection of God, taking his love with you wherever you go. We are never alone. 
We are not orphans in this world. We have our extraordinary Father God, who is always with us and always in us. And we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious, holy, written word. It is life to us and health and medicine to all our flesh. Thank you for reminding us who we are and who we can be in you. Throughout this coming week, nudge us by your Holy Spirit to take time alone with you without agenda. Help us to cultivate the intimate fellowship you have been waiting for us to share with you. Our eyes are on you. Our hearts are open to you. We purpose to hear your voice and walk in obedience to you, Father. May we be a reflection of your love to those we meet this week. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you are dismissed.